So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Saturn Race, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside to gate. We went outside the gate to Riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of um, Theatira, Theatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after we sh she was baptised, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she pre prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own as much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Just going to read another few verses from uh, that chapter that we were reading, Acts chapter 20, uh, 16. We're going to read from verse 25 through to verse 31. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake, but the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So here's a letter that was uh, written by the Apostle Paul to a, uh, to a church in Philippi. Why did we read Acts chapter uh, 16? Well, actually, because that was the beginning of the church, which we're going to see. We're going to think about that in a few minutes. Uh, but we come to this uh, letter that Paul writes to this church, Philippians. Is that right? No. Yeah? Close. Uh, my kind of grammar gurus over on the right-hand side. <laughs> Philippine, where is it? Well, let's have a quick look on, uh, on the map. Uh, this is a, a map of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, you can see Rome there up on the top left-hand side. Uh, that's the kind of boot of Italy, and then coming kind of round the corner, Thess Thessalonica, Athens, and then you can see right up at the top there, Philippi. Down onto the mainland, you see Ephesus. Where is Philippi? It's, in, it's now what we would consider East Macedonia, part of Greece. That gives you an idea of where, we're, where we are. Paul made this journey from Jerusalem, an anti-clockwise journey. Philippi was pretty much the most northern part of his journey before he traveled back uh, down and round uh, through Athens 
uh, and then heading back finally uh, to Jerusalem. We're able to see there the, uh, the scope, if you like, uh, of Paul's journey. We're now going to have a quick look at how this letter opens. So we're going to be dealing with the first uh, two verses of Philippians. I promise you, uh, we're going to deal with verses uh, this afternoon. I promise you that is not the pace that we're going to go at. Uh, we're going to go a lot quicker through the next few sections. We're not going to be dealing with it two verses at a time. Given that it's uh, got four chapters, I think that would probably mean that we'd finish it sometime uh, Christmas 2012. We are going to be dealing with it uh, a bit quicker. But these two verses really open up for us, give us a platform, I think, for our understanding, a foundation for us, uh, as we set off into this uh, study of this letter, which was sent to a church uh, just about a bit less than 2,000 years ago. But as you saw on our, on our screen uh, earlier, it is a letter to the church at Pai and for us, the church at Escape. We'll see why. Why is it a letter which is sent to both of those churches. Let's have a look. Let's work through. The opening uh, line we, hear, we read here, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. That's how it opens up. Really important. What? Because Paul is saying we are servants of Jesus Christ. What is it to be a servant? Well, the most obvious thing is, is quite simply this. You can't be a servant of somebody who's dead. Can you? You can't be a servant of somebody who's dead. You can remember somebody who is dead. You can honor somebody who is dead. But you certainly can't be a servant. Paul opens this letter and he says here, let me, let me put a foundation in place right at the very beginning. Paul and Timothy writing to you, church at Philippi, we are servants of Jesus Christ. Paul puts it a slightly different way in, in Corinthians. He says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That is how foundational, how critical it is for Paul. And it's also opening up this letter for us right at the very beginning uh, and saying this is just the foundation of the Bible. Jesus is risen. And Paul says, says I am a servant of the risen Jesus. He lives. And quite honestly, he says to the Corinthians, something along the lines of, it almost sounds like this, to be perfectly honest, guys, if Jesus hasn't risen, you might as well just go off and have a good life. You might as well just live it up. You might as well just get the most pleasure you possibly can, because if Jesus hasn't risen, everything that I say is, is a complete waste. It's just a waste of time. It is vain. It is empty. 
There's nothing to it. It's just worthless. Everything that I say is in vain, and everything that you believe, your faith, is in vain. It, is, it has no foundation. It is worthless. It is useless. Somebody once said, um, you know what? Even if Jesus, the message of Jesus, isn't true, well, at least, at least we've had a good life. <laughs> that is rubbish. That's, that's just rubbish. The Christian life does not necessarily bring good in every aspect. If Jesus hasn't risen, there is no deeper peace. There is no deeper foundation. There is no deeper worth. There is no value. There is no confidence beyond death. You might as well just go and do other stuff, Paul says. And yet at the same time, he is utterly convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. That says to us, there is something beyond death. There is a God who we stand before. There is hope for those who trust in him, believe in him, because Jesus has risen from the dead. I said earlier, in fact, I mentioned, we've put it on the slide. This is a letter to the church at Philippi and escape. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. Because Jesus lives. It is the only thing that makes the message of this letter timeless and therefore relevant to us today. If Jesus has not been from the dead, then there's no point listening to the rest of this. And yet Paul is utterly convinced, utterly confident, to be able to say that to the church at Philippi, Jesus has been raised from the dead and therefore everything else that follows on. For us today, we read an open letter here. We come to this maybe from many different perspectives. Maybe your perspective is, I'm just, I'm just considering this. I'm thinking about this Christian faith. I've been coming along. Uh, how does it impact me? Paul opens up this letter right at the very beginning and he says, the rest of this applies to you and me today risen. Because Jesus is, because we are servants of the risen Lord Jesus. It allows us today to stand to, to some extent in Paul and Timothy's shoes and say we're servants. We are servants of the risen Lord Jesus. Why do we do what we're doing here? Because Jesus has risen. Because he is living today. Because he does engage with us today. Therefore, because this letter has words to say to us. Let's have a look at how it continues. If that risen Lord Jesus uh, is true, then it changes the recipients of the letter. Look at how Paul addresses them. He says to these, this church in uh, Philippi to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. In all, to all the saints at Christ, of Christ Jesus 
in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Don't know about you. I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know about you. I'll be honest for all of us. I don't know about you, but my, my consciousness, my awareness of myself says that if I was to put a, a descriptor against Paul Howell, I would not say saint. <laughs> I wouldn't. You know, I, I don't consider myself in the category of saint. You know, when you think about saints, what do you think about? Exemplary people. Good people. People of standing and people who are just consistent living out a life which is faithful and, uh, and everything that you kind of look up to and say, that's how it should be. I'm not like that, and you're not like that. We're not like that, are we? We are not what, deep down, what we know we ought to be. That's exactly the same kind of people as Paul wrote this letter to. That's why we read Acts chapter 16. He goes into Philippi. A city uh, in, in Greece goes into that important Roman city uh, and start, starts to engage with people. He goes alongside a river, goes out of the city during the, uh, during the, on the, the Sabbath, uh, and he engages with a woman named Lydia. Prosperous businesswoman, a seller of purple cloth. Somebody who, who may, you may consider... Um, Good. You know, she's a religious person. After all, she's successful. She obviously has her life in order. Everything looks right on the outside. Uh, and what's more, she's out there alongside the river praying on the Sabbath. So she's more than that. She is also somebody who has religiously got her life in order. And yet when she hears the message of Paul when she listens to the message that's being communicated to her by the apostles, she realizes that for all of that front, for all of that activity, for all of that lifestyle, it's not right. We read in Acts that, uh, that it says that the, the Lord opened her heart to receive the message that Paul brought. That's the first one first person who hears this message, Lydia, comes to faith in that Jesus, the one that Paul opens the letter by saying he lives. Uh, so I would suggest to you this afternoon that if you consider yourself to be religiously upright, Lydia is in exactly the same shoes as you're wearing today. If you are basing your relationship with God on the fact that you walk an upright life, that everything on the outside is in order, that your relationship and activity uh, with people around you seems balanced, uh, and even more than that, that you fulfill uh, religious uh, observance. It is not relationship with the risen Jesus. Heart needs to be opened to know that you're not right, that I'm not right. My religious observance is not sufficient for me to be accepted by the living God. Lydia understood that. And now let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Because now let's see a slave girl. She's owned. She's owned by uh, those who 
in this world own her as her slave owners, and she's owned by, uh, by the spirit world, which has just possessed her. Paul and, uh, and Silas, they just get so frustrated. Well, Paul gets frustrated after a number of days because she just keeps shouting after them. Somebody who is, couldn't be further away from Lydia. Her life is not balanced. She's all over the place. But then that living Jesus breaks into her life by the words of the Apostle Paul. She comes to faith. She comes to know the same God who Lydia has come to know. She becomes a worshipper of that God in the same way as Lydia has become a worshipper of that God. So there's just two ends of the spectrum. Two women. I was just a real quick point. There are many people who kind of argue that the Bible is, is uh, chauvinistic and prejudiced against women. One of the remarkable find, things that you find again and again and again in the Bible when you start to dig into it is that it tells a story in the first century which subverts the culture of the day. A culture which was uh, putting women uh, under real pressure, not considering them. What do we read here? first two people who come to know the living Jesus in Philippi are women. If you want to write a story in the first century, which is not going to be accepted because it is culturally out of touch, you write a story like this. You write a story which shows two women coming to faith. It just changes, doesn't it? Our understanding. People say, yeah, the Bible's so against women. It isn't. Here's an example. And the next one who comes to faith is somebody who you would never expect to come to faith. A hard-nosed Roman jailer. That is a picture of the saints at Philippi. Three people. Three different people. Three surprisingly different people. Three people whose experiences in life couldn't be further apart, and yet they come to know Jesus, they come to faith in Him, and as a result of that, Paul says, you are saints. No matter where you come from, no matter what your perspective is, no matter what your background is, you need to understand that the living Jesus can engage with you. If your situation is, is the kind of situation where you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but you don't know what's going on in my life, Paul. You don't know the situations that I'm engaged in. You don't know the things that I'm involved in. The living Jesus can reach you and speak to you and change you so that you are described as a saint. What else do we read? 
Well, Paul goes on to say that this letter is also to the overseers and the deacons. Episkopos and diakonos are the two Greek words that are used there. The, the leaders of what? The leaders of the church, the pastors uh, and servants in the church. What's happened in the past uh, 11 years since Paul was in Philippi? 11 years earlier he was there, uh, and now he writes a letter to them. What's happened? Well, what we see in this opening verse is that what has happened since three people have come to faith in Jesus is that has grown. There's a church there now. There's a whole community of people who are worshippers of the living God. That's the purpose that God has for this world. Why are we here? Why are we in this place, in this building? Why should we bother to be here? Because the purpose of God is to establish a community of people. A community of people who become worshippers of God, who are together as a body of God's people, who are the saints who have found faith in Jesus Christ. And that happens again and again and again all over the place, throughout the globe. We read about it here in Philippi, but we also see that the purpose of God all over the place, all around the world, and we see it happening. What does Paul say? He says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you know what it is to have peace with God? Well, actually, it is found, it is achieved, it is known through the risen Jesus. Paul connects himself in one sense here with the message of what we're going to be remembering in a few weeks' time, with the message of Christmas. We read in the Christmas story, as the angels appear to those shepherds, what do they declare? Peace on earth and goodwill to those on whom the Father's love rests. Peace on earth. Jesus is the broker of peace between men and women and the living God. And so Paul is able to say to these Christians in this Roman city, and is also able to say therefore to us today, there is peace for you with the living God. What does peace look like? Peace looks like a calm conscience. A calm conscience before God. A sense of knowledge that God is for me and not against me. How is that worked out? Because of grace. Grace is out and there is peace with God. He says that to these Christians who meet in Philippi. He says it to Christians who meet in escape. He says it to Christians who meet throughout this Throughout this world, in relationship with the living God, there is peace. But there is something even more remarkable about this. Because as, we, as we're beginning to, as we'll understand from this letter, as we open it up a little bit more, we'll find that the direction of peace that is being proclaimed 
is surprising. Paul, when he writes this letter, is in a Roman jail, awaiting trial, expecting execution. Wouldn't you expect, therefore, that he would be the one who would need a letter to say, peace, Paul, grace, encourage you, Paul, give you hope, give you confidence, we're with you. And yet the one who is actually in the jail, the one who is there expecting pending execution, he is the one who is able to say to this church, from the living God. That's remarkable, isn't it? That is a level of peace. That is a level of confidence in God which can only be known if we believe that Jesus is risen and if we believe that the, the opposition of a pe pending trial and execution cannot separate me from God's love and God's peace. I can be in that situation. I can be in a cold jail. I can be facing death. And yet I can still have a deeper foundation of peace and confidence in the living God that says that I can say to you, grace and peace. It goes in a surprising direction. I don't know all of your situations. But I know that there are many of us who are facing of times. I know that there are many of us who are facing uh, crises, difficulties, and hardships. And I also know, because the many conversations that I've had with people down through the years have said this, there is nothing in this world that can give us a peace that is deep enough to provide a hope. It has got to be a peace from outside of this world. It has got to be something which provides strength and hope, which cannot be knocked over, cannot be uh, turned upside down by things in this world. I need a peace and I need a hope outside because what I'm facing in this world is just going to knock me over. Anything that can help me beyond this. And the risen Jesus says yes. The risen Jesus says there is a peace, there is a hope, and because it's a peace and a hope from outside of this world, it can extend into this world and give you hope and confidence now. So that what you face is not going to triumph over you, it's not going to wipe you out, it is not going to destroy you. There is a hope outside. The other remarkable thing is, as we read in Acts chapter 16, Paul finds himself in jail in Philippi. In fact, that's the way in which the Roman jailer comes to faith. And he finds himself in jail again here now. It says to me this, that the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, as we call it, 
never advances without adversity. Never advances without hardship. In fact, there is something incredibly powerful about the gospel progressing in tough times. Paul puts it like this in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. (laughs) That sounds crazy, doesn't it? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Is he some kind of, uh, kind of masochist that just loves to inflict pain on himself? Is, is, that, is that where Paul is? No. Because he goes on to say this, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And those of us who've been looking at the Bible for a long time, we might think, Paul, what are you saying? What are, you, are, you, are you saying that Christ's afflictions, his death, is not sufficient? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? He's saying, I, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake because I am filling up for the Missing part of Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? I think it means this. Jesus' death on the cross is absolutely sufficient. It is complete. It is all that we need to be saved. But it seems as though the gospel always moves forward with visual displays of that. It always moves forward with people living out that. Paul says, I'm living out in front of you. I am embracing this suffering. I am rejoicing in it because it gives you a visual aid, an illustration of what it meant for Christ to die. I am being for you an example of what it means to lay down my life for the sake of another. And when the the, uh, Colossian church, when the church at Philippi look at that, they see Paul just laying down his life, just, just pouring out his life for their sake. And it doesn't make them think, wow, isn't Paul amazing? It makes them think, that's what Jesus is like. That's what Jesus is like. Because Paul is only laying out his life uh, as an example of what Jesus has already done. And that seems to me the way the gospel always moves Look at the church in China. Remarkable growth. How? Because for many, many years, many years, those who believed in Jesus were just being broken. Even another picture. There was two families uh, in America uh, living next door to each other. One family were, were, were believers in Jesus and the family next door uh, didn't believe in Jesus. They were really great friends. 
Uh, they lived in a well-to-do neighborhood. And uh, the family who believes in Jesus, as they, as they spent time with those next door, they realized that, that all of their security, all of their hope, was absolutely built on their possessions. You know, that's where their hope was. If you took that away, it, it was gone. That, that there was nothing left in life for them. This Christian family, they began to pray, Lord, we love our friends next door. Uh, we pray to you that you would do whatever is necessary so that they would come to know you. Take away their, their confidence in, in all of their possessions. Be careful what you pray for. <laughs> because God answers prayers in surprising ways. The following month, the Christian husband fell seriously, seriously ill. Life-threatening. He found that he couldn't work anymore. He was stripped of his security. It was gone. Around about two months later, their neighbor came round to see them. And they said to them, can you explain to us uh, about this faith that you have? Why? I mean, I mean, we're really going through it at the moment. Why do you want to hear of our faith at this point in time? And the neighbors turned around to them and they said, because we've watched you. We've watched you get stripped of health. We've watched you get stripped of financial security. And yet there is something in your lives which when we look, we can see that there is a foundation and there is a security that I know we don't have. I know that we don't have it. We haven't got that confidence. You know, if you ripped all things away from us, what would we have? Now, whatever that might be. You know, being accepted by the group. You know, being attractive. Being the person that's in, in crowd. And if, if you're not in the in crowd, then life isn't worth living. You know, I need that. I need that peer recognition. You know, maybe at some point you'll be stripped of that. Maybe you'll have a disfiguring accident. Not be able to communicate in some way. What have you got then? Where's your security? Where's your hope? Where's your foundation? And this, these neighbors, they realized, if, if we got stripped of, of health and our finances, we've had it. But we look at you and we realize that you can get stripped of everything. And yet you've got a deep foundation, you've got a deeper hope. That is exactly what Paul is saying. My hope is founded on Jesus, the living, risen Christ. Therefore, my sufferings and the fact that I suffer communicates to you my hope in him. So that Paul is able to say, I have a deeper hope. I have a deeper confidence. I want to encourage you, if you believe in Jesus, if you have that confidence that this Jesus is my Savior, the way, to, the way to hope, the way to confidence, the way to peace, 
is to realize we can be stripped of absolutely everything and yet still have a confidence in him and a hope in him. It doesn't matter whether it's our health, whether it's our possessions, whether it's our relationships. He is the one who is risen and therefore is our confidence and our hope. Can I also suggest to you, if you are still building your confidence in something outside of the living, risen Jesus, it is going to let you down at some point. It's going to let you down. It might be that it takes many, many years. Perhaps it's just old age that will cause you to be stripped of your help and your hope. But somehow, some way, it will let you down because you need a peace, not from this world, you need a peace from outside of this world and that can only be found in Jesus who was broken into this world, died and yet rose again. Can I invite you? Every one of us need to be working, being on a journey of gaining knowledge of that Jesus and therefore a deeper hope in him. Can I encourage you? Commit yourself in one way or another to knowing more of Jesus. Whether it's the house groups, whether it's uh, committing yourself more to, to ministry here, whether it's building relationships with people who you know can be there to support you and pray for you. And if you don't know that, can I say, can I suggest to you, you need to know that. You need to be looking to a hope which is outside of this world.